Good night. Hello. Good evening. Um, first of all, I just want to say how happy I am to be here tonight with you and for the next three weeks. Um, just to enter this place of stillness, this space you have created and really feeling the, the lightness and the <coughs> sensitivity in this field. Beautiful. And this morning as I was sitting here for the first time, <laughs> um, I didn't dare to clear my throat because it felt like, oh, they are so <laughs> quiet, they are so still, oh my God. So <coughs> I hope my voice will do it this evening. Um, I would like to talk about mindfulness and about its role on our path to awakening. And I find it interesting that mindfulness is a quality that is so central and essential for our practice. And yet at times it can appear as something that seems not very spectacular, not very fascinating, but something that seems rather ordinary. We just take mindfulness for granted. We have heard the instructions on how to practice it. And those instructions sound deceptively simple, isn't it? Sit and know you're sitting. Notice the sensations in your body. Feel them, etc. Not a big deal, right? <laughs> and yet, when we actually practice mindfulness over a certain period, we start to sense a depth of this quality, we start to feel that there is something so essential about it, so profound, that doesn't really seem to be captured in this word mindfulness. And even more so nowadays, as we witness the mainstreaming of mindfulness and its applications in very diverse contexts, such as therapy, education, business, and other contexts. <coughs> and invol being involved myself in this field of mindfulness-based interventions, I cannot help feeling sometimes that there is something essential missing there. When I read texts or listen to people who, of course, in my own opinion, reduce mindfulness to some kind of attention regulation function or just the, the ability to find some inner calm also. And I feel there is so much more to it. And I feel that to explore the depths and the scope of mindfulness takes years to explore that. And of course, I'm not claiming that I personally have reached any final understanding, no way. Somehow in our practice, the explorations just keep continuing and we move on and we discover new aspects again and again. We can come to ever more refined understandings and this makes it interesting. I remember how in one three-month retreat here at IMS, I was exploring this question, what is mindfulness really? What does it mean to be aware? You know, this capacity that we have to be aware, to be conscious, to know what is going on, what is happening. A capacity that somehow struck me as somehow deeply mysterious and that I was really curious about. And then I went into the interview with Guy Armstrong and told him, you know, I'm trying to understand mindfulness and uh, what is it about? And he just laughed and he said, well, that is something that I have been trying to find out for more than 25 years. So, yeah. 
Well, what I'd like to talk about tonight is how we find mindfulness discussed and described in the Pali Canon and the Buddhist suttas. Understanding more clearly the functions of mindfulness in the context of such a spiritual path, a path of awakening, will help us to recognize the depths and the transformative power that mindfulness can have, far beyond calm and stress reduction. In this context, mindfulness cannot be separated from an integrative vision of human potential, and it cannot be separated from a broader understanding of how our mind works and how it can be cultivated. And different from some modern usages of this word where mindfulness sometimes can be presented like a fix for all kinds of problems or like a thing that we either have or don't have, in the Buddhist tradition, mindfulness or sati is always seen as a mental factor that closely collaborates with other factors such as wisdom or energy. Yeah. <clears throat> but on the other hand, the Buddha was very clear about it that among those mental factors, mindfulness is one of the key factors that needs to be developed. In the Dhammapada, an ancient Buddhist text, it says, the foolish and the ignorant give themselves over to negligence, whereas the wise treasure mindfulness as a precious jewel. Therefore, one should not be negligent, nor be addicted to sensual pleasures, for he or she who is established in mindfulness through cultivation of tranquility and insight development practice experiences supreme happiness. Mindfulness also appears in many of the lists of important factors in the teachings. It is being mentioned very often. For instance, mindfulness is one of the five spiritual faculties, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. All of those qualities need to be strengthened and brought into balance. Mindfulness is also the first of the seven factors of awakening. You know this list that Rebecca spoke about the other day. Mindfulness, investigation or discrimination, energy, rapture, calm, concentration, and equanimity. And being the first quality in this row, mindfulness is what gives rise to all the other factors of awakening. So it really has a prominent place. And then, of course, right mindfulness, samasati, is part of the Eightfold Path. Now, to understand why mindfulness is so central, it is helpful to understand that, according to the Buddha, the very root of our suffering is lying in a fundamental distortion of our perception, in the way we perceive and cognize. It is not our personal fault that so often we take our experience to be the reality and don't rea realize the extent to which this so-called reality is actually a pretty biased construction of our mind. We are inhabiting, in truth, a personal mental bubble and mistake it to be the reality. And then we react to it. The distortions of the mind, the so-called vipalasas, include the distortions of, you might know them, seeing things as stable and permanent rather than as transitory and impermanent, 
experiencing what is basically unsatisfactory as pleasant, experiencing and believing in a separate and solid self, and experiencing what is impure as pure. And it is due to those misperceptions and biases that are so ingrained in our system that we constantly reach out and grasp after things that seem attractive and then we run away or fight against things that we fear, that feel unpleasant, or if something is neither pleasant nor unpleasant, we simply ignore them. We don't pay any attention to them. So, for instance, we, <coughs> we can be very attached to sense pleasures, knowing very well that they are not healthy. Easy. Or we harbor some expectations and hopes about the future and then find that we are disappointed if these expectations are not fulfilled. It is actually quite poignant to see how we and most people constantly are trying so hard to find happiness through making huge efforts. You know, we work so hard, many people are working so hard to gain more money, more status. We endure hardship, we manipulate, we strategize, we run, we seek constant pleasures. It's quite exhausting. We are trying our best to find happiness. And then yet, in the end, none of these efforts will do it, will give us this promised happiness. Because all of those efforts are founded in a basically wrong and distorted view of how things are. And so they are bound to fail. And even more poignant is to see if we are meditating, how we are recreating this delusion moment by moment, just due to this tendency to again and again grasp after what is in front of us, or to run away and then to proliferate about what is going on. It is out of such habits of our mind that we are producing complex mind worlds on the basis of simple sense perceptions, dramas of success and failure, happiness and frustrations, dramas that are, of course, always centered around me and my story, isn't it? Now, in order to be truly happy, we need to wake up from this delusion. We need to train our mind. That's what you have been doing all the time. We need to cultivate wholesome qualities like kindness, compassion, generosity, effort, patience. And we need to develop the wisdom that sees through these distortions, sees through this tendency to fabricate endless, complex thought worlds and then to be lost in them. And it is in this process that mindfulness plays a central role. Mindfulness is the faculty that we need in order to guide the mind in a more wholesome direction. It is a key quality in this whole process, in this cultivation of the mind and the heart, because mindfulness addresses the problem of this distorted perception. Yeah. And so I would now like to consider a bit more in detail where and how mindfulness plays a role in this process and would like to discuss some functions because if you are looking for a Buddhist understanding of mindfulness and you go to the, the texts, you are not going to find a neat definition in the modern style, you know, nowhere in the Pali Canon did the Buddha say, okay, 
mindfulness definition and then <laughs> really saying what it is. But he said a lot about the function of mindfulness in different contexts. <coughs> so there are different functions that I would like to go through and the first of them being remembering or keeping our intention in mind or recollecting. So this is the first function of mindfulness, to recollect or to remember. The Pali word for mindfulness, sati, is very closely related to the Sanskrit word smrti, which was used in pre-Buddhist times in connection with the Vedas and the Upanishads. And in these traditions, the holy scriptures were to be recollected and kept in mind because they contained important teachings. And also in the Buddhist discourses, in the Pali word sati is related to this ability of remembering. For instance, in one place it says, he or she is mindful, being endowed with highest discriminative mindfulness so that things said or done long ago are recalled and remembered. Also Ananda, Buddha's close and devoted disciple who was well known for his outstanding memory, was praised as being Satimanta, the first among those with a good memory. This of course makes sense because presence of the mind in a moment is a prerequisite to be able to remember in the next moment what has happened, to remember this experience later. And I'm sure we all know these moments where we just couldn't recall, where did I put my keys? Because we weren't mindful in the moment when we put the key somewhere. Or someone is introducing themselves to us, saying their names, and two minutes later, I, I don't know, I don't remember. Oh, what was her name? So the more mindful we are in a moment, of course, the more of this experience will be retained and we can recall it later. But there is also a second aspect to this recollection. Sati enables us to keep an intention in mind. It is what makes us wake up from a state of confusion and remember what it was that we wanted to do. Like when we remember to be present or when we remember to engage in some action that we have formed the intention to do. So we could say that mindfulness is the ability of keeping in mind our intentions and of not getting distracted. On the path of awakening, this is essential, that we keep this intention alive, that we stay aligned with our deepest intention. In meditation practice, it can also mean that we remember to look at our experience through certain lenses, let's say, using the frame of reference of seeing impermanence, of, of tuning into impermanence. And we try to bring this view to our experience. And this can be a way of practicing that we deliberately have a certain intention how we view our ex experience. So mindfulness is what reminds us again and again of our intention, of what we want, of our aspiration. And it can do so in any moment, no matter what we are doing, any activity can become a part of our mind's training if we remember if there is mindfulness. So that was the first function. The second one is full awareness of the present experience. 
The function of memory is closely related to the function of being aware of the present moment experience, to actually register whatever is going on in our experience. Because in both cases, the mind is somehow holding an object. This is what I would call full awareness of this experience. We are like face to face with it. Um, and this is essential for mental transformation because only if sati establishes an object in our mind, we can actually recognize it and investigate it thoroughly. And <coughs> this... <coughs> This contracts the mind's tendency to get lost, to be distracted. It's only when we can really face our experience, see it clearly, that our understanding can grow. So, for instance, in the Satipatthana Sutta it says, a practitioner, when taking in a long in-breath, knows I am taking a long in-breath, or when taking a long out-breath, she knows I'm taking a long out-breath. Sounds simple. It is thanks to Sati that we learn to access our experience more directly, more immediately. That we learn to attend to sensations and to other objects in our meditation in a very direct way rather than through our concepts, through our ideas that we may have. It is through mindfulness that we come back to the simplicity of the felt experience, just as it is seen, heard, felt, touched right now, free from this conceptual overlay. <coughs> In order to do this, actually, the mind has to be relaxed enough so that it can actually take in the experience. There is a simile in the texts where a sati is compared to a cowherd who has to make sure that his cows will not eat from the wheat fields. And once the wheat has been harvested, the cowherd can quietly settle down under a tree and just keep an eye on the cows from there. <coughs> Sati is compared here to this very relaxed and in a way detached alertness of this cowherd leaning against a tree. Can you imagine leaning against a tree in the shade of this tree and just being aware of what is going on in a very relaxed way with a mind that is wide and open. I love this image, this metaphor, because it conveys so nicely this sense of a mind, the sense of a mind state that is relaxed, awake, and wide. Now there are other situations. So there is another simile where the Buddha compared sati to the probe of a doctor from a sutta. Suppose, Sunakata, a man were wounded by an arrow thickly smeared with poison. A surgeon would cut around the opening of the wound with a knife. Then he would probe for the arrow with a probe. Then he would pull out the arrow and would expel the poisonous humor without leaving a trace of it behind. Here, Sati has the function of gaining clear information through careful examination. So Sati is compared to this probe of the doctor. It enables the doctor to know what is going on. And actually this simile is about recognizing unwholesome mind states. You know, when we somehow know there is something going on, then we deliberately bring our attention and we say, okay, let's stop. What's going on? This is this probing, really moving closer and becoming more careful in our investigation.
Thus, we could say that sati allows us to register what is going on, both outside as well as in our mental world. Sati is a state of mind that is wide, receptive, and at the same time deep and thorough. Without sati, the mind is simply not able to effectively absorb information and in consequence not able to learn the quality of sati is very different from our normal perception that is so superficial. Normally, we are so busy and impatient in our daily life that we hardly take notice of what we are experiencing. So, like in here, we might simply notice, okay, people... Uh, there is ceiling, lamps, uh, uh, yeah, I, I see things around here. But then the perceptual process stops. We don't go beyond that. We are content simply to put our experience in a box and then we know what we have seen. Yeah. And you could compare this more careful examination of sati to the looking of uh, I'm sorry, looking at a painting, you know, as we are looking at a painting, just as we are passing by it, we will only see the features that really stand out, and probably we will have forgotten this painting the next mind moment when there is another sense impression. If, however, we take the time and if we bring mindfulness to a situation if we let our attention dwell on our experience, then gradually deeper aspects, finer aspects of the painting can open up to our understanding. That is the power of sati, to hold an experience so present that we begin to perceive more deeply and thoroughly below the level of concepts and ideas. With sati, our attention doesn't wobble anymore so much. It has the power to steady the mind so that the experience can actually be felt and known. So, <clears throat> of course, this awareness of our present experience necessarily has to go together with honesty unless we are willing to really see the full picture, we are not going to do that. We are not prepared for it. It takes also a lot of kindness with ourselves to face both the beautiful, wholesome qualities in our minds as well as the rather difficult, unwholesome states. But... To the extent that sati is there, then really mindful awareness of whatever the experience might be can grow. And to this extent, the learning is happening. So I'm coming to the third function of sati, which is tying the mind to an object. Another function of sati is that it ties the attention to the object and enables it to retain focus and attention on this object. So if we are really present in the actual experience, this counteracts our normal tendency of fragmentation and dispersion of our minds. And this is what we need if we want to develop concentration and collectedness. Although we can clearly distinguish between sati, mindfulness on one side, and uh, concentration or collectedness on the other side, in practice, these two qualities really have to work together. They really support each other. There is a nice simile in another sutta, the Chapana Sutta, where mindfulness is compared to a post or a pillar firmly anchored in the ground. And there are six different animals, a snake, a crocodile, a bird, a dog, a hyena, how does one pronounce that? <laughs> and a monkey. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
And these six animals are symbolizing our six senses, including the thinking mind, which are constantly trying to pull us in all different directions. Yeah? Now, <coughs> these animals are running in all different directions, um, like our senses, which are so fascinated by all the sense impressions. But when the post of mindfulness is really firm, after a while, these animals will calm down and they will simply lie down and remain in their place. And it says in the Sutta, in the same way, when a practitioner whose mindfulness immersed in the body is developed and pursued, the eye does not pull toward pleasing forms and unpleasing forms are not repellent. The ear does not pull toward pleasing sounds and unpleasing sounds are not repellent. And this goes on with aromas, the tongue, the body, the intellect. So we can see that mindfulness keeps the attention with a chosen object or notices as soon as the mind goes off. And in this way, gradually, the mind will collect and become firm. Or as it says in a commentarial text, it does not wobble. And this is the precondition for concentration, for samadhi to develop. So we've had uh, remembering, recollection, the full awareness coming face to face with our experience, tying the mind to an object. And the fourth function is to protect the mind from unskillful states and actions. That is uh, another really important function of sati. And it is actually linked to the previous function that I've just mentioned. Um, because sati prevents us from getting lost. To ex the extent that we can remain with an object, we are not constantly being pulled away. And we are not being pulled away into unethical behavior, of course. Um, I have mentioned how basically our perception is so distorted and flawed and it is from this that we constantly react to this distorted perception. It's like we create things, we create the world, we create impressions and then we have all kinds of reactions to these perceptions. It's like in this old Zen story where a gifted monk uh, went to practice in a cave for many years. And I don't know, maybe he was bored or so, and he started to paint a tiger on the wall of his cave. It took him years. And when he had finally finished, this tiger was so incredibly realistic that the monk, looking at this painting, became frightened by it and ran away. <laughs> so don't we know that for ourselves? how we fabricate frightening scenarios in our own minds, and then we are lost, we are suffering. It's all happening through our own minds. And here mindfulness is what protects us from this tendency, from this habit. In one sutta, it is said that sati is like the guardian at the entrance to a town, whose job is to make sure that no dangerous people will enter the town. <clears throat> Being right there at the sense doors of the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, Sati recognizes whatever is arising and does not allow unwholesome tendencies to get hold of the mind. This is called guarding the sense doors or restraining the senses. And it is actually a more active form of mindfulness, which we also need at times to prevent the mind from, you know, developing unhelpful habits. 
As Joseph Goldstein writes, with recurring unskillful thoughts, we need an actively engaged mindfulness because, as the Buddha said, pointed out, whatever we frequently think of and ponder, that will become the inclination of our minds. It's just like saying, no, I'm not going down this road. I've gone there already many, many times and I know that it's not leading anywhere. I have understood that this is unskillful and knowing this, I can choose not to go there anymore. Sometimes we can do that. If we are really present to our actual experience, this will also prevent the mind from getting lost in all those fantasies and daydreaming because we simply notice whatever sense impressions arise. When hearing is happening, we know hearing is happening. And we don't go into the conceptual proliferation. Oh, what sound is it? I like it. I don't like it. Blah, blah. We are just firmly grounded in our experience. And this protective power of mindfulness can be very powerful at times, as we can see in yet another simile. So <clears throat> this is from Analayo's book on mindfulness. This simile depicts a man carrying a bowl brimming with oil on his head through a crowd watching a beautiful girl singing and dancing. He is followed by another man with a drawn sword ready to cut off his head if even one drop of oil is spilled. To preserve his life, the man carrying the oil has to apply his full attention to each step and movement without allowing the commotion around the girl to distract him. The Buddha in the discourse goes on to ask, what do you think, bhikkhus, or we could say practitioners, would that man stop attending to the oil and out of negligence turn his attention outwards? Of course not, clearly because this man has to be aware of every of his movements in order to avoid losing his head. As John Peacock writes, losing one's head works as a very good metaphor for exactly what happens when there is no sati guarding the sense doors. Well, even though at times our mindfulness may not be strong enough <coughs> to prevent unskillful mind states. But then we can still resort to deliberately turning our attention away from objects that we know are only going to upset us or arouse wanting in our mind. This is sometimes more skillful to do. Just simply withdrawing our attention from an object when we notice strong reactivity in our minds. For instance, when I know that thinking of a certain person will arouse so much uh, desire or aversion towards this person, then it might be skillful at times to redirect my attention to some neutral object again, like feeling my body, feeling my breath. We always have the possibility to choose our focus of attention, and it is through mindfulness that we can change the radio channel, so to speak. When the channel is only playing some cacophonic noise, we can switch to some other channel, you know. So knowing and training in this practice of protective mindfulness is huge. We recognize that we can actually change the workings of our minds. And there is so much more freedom once we learn not to get caught in all those objects so much anymore. There is just more space to breathe. Then the fifth function of sati that I'd like to mention has to do with the mental development process in which sati plays a crucial role as a kind of a meta function for other 
mental factors. So it's the balancing function of sati. Among the five so-called spiritual faculties that I already mentioned at the beginning, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom, sati has a special role as it constantly watches and balances the other factors. For instance, sati is compared to a charioteer in one discourse. And this charioteer, always carefully keeping an eye on the state of the mind, recognizes when there is a need for adjustment. Like when there is a lack of energy, or when there is much faith but not enough wisdom. It is sati that prevents an imbalance in the mental process and makes sure that we stay on track. So here sati exerts a kind of a meta-function over the other functions of the mind. It is this self-reflexive ability of our mind to watch what is going on, to watch our own mental processes, and then to recognize when there is a need to perhaps adjust something, to realign ourselves. So that was the fifth function. So the sixth one is a little bit different. It's about deliberately constructing conceptions. Um, there is a whole range in the tradition of practices that actually involve a rather productive or creative function of sati. It's not just receiving of our sensory experience, but the very deliberate orientation of our mind to certain objects. So there are practices which might involve bringing to the mind the Buddha or some wholesome quality like peace or morality in order to inspire the mind. These are the so-called anusatis, the practices of the anusatis. So there is Buddha Anusati, Dhamma Anusati, Sangha Anusati, the recollection of Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Um, there is the contemplation of other wholesome objects that are recommended really as mindfulness practices which can help at times to inspire us, to uplift the mind and to strengthen wholesome mental factors. As it says in the Mahanama Sutta, at any time when a disciple of the Noble Ones is recollecting the Tathagata, his mind is not overcome by passion, not overcome with aversion, not overcome with delusion. His mind heads straight, based on the Tathagata. And when the mind is headed straight, the disciple of the Noble Ones gains a sense of the goal, gains a sense of the Dhamma, gains joy connected with the Dhamma. So this is one form of deliberately bringing something to our mind. Other practices involve rather <laughs> sobering meditation objects like the decaying body or death contemplations which help us to realize impermanence. Also, actually, the meditation of loving-kindness, metta-meditation, is also a kind of these practices where we deliberately bring something to our mind. It's a more creative use of our mind. <clears throat> so, in these cases... Sati is used less in the sense of apperceiving our experience and more in the sense of intentionally creating wholesome conceptions and establishing them as mind objects. And I find this very interesting. I, I was surprised first when I read that because it can broaden our understanding of Sati. So let's summarize these six functions of sati as 
they have been described in the Pali Suttas. We had the remembering, the full awareness of present experience, tying the mind to the object, protecting the mind from unskillful states, balancing the mind, and deliberately constructing um, certain conceptions. And we have seen that sati plays such a crucial role in the mental cultivation from the very beginning, and this is throughout the whole process. Holding our basic intention in mind, we walk our path in a deliberate and circumspect way. We are watching our steps and constantly adjusting them when needed. And in this way, making sure we are walking in the same, in the right direction. This is all thanks to Sati. And as we have seen also, Sati is not only a passive quality of receiving the present moment's experience, but it can also have quite an active, engaged role sometimes. Now, I would like to say a few words on the development of sati because I think we can really see in our own practice how mindfulness can develop and evolve over time. In the early stages of our practice, mindfulness um, may mean mainly that we just try to bring the effort to... the staying in the moment. We just try to keep the attention in the present moment and we often need to anchor the attention in a rather limited aspect of our experience and then just coming back again and again whenever we notice that the mind has wandered off. Uh, so it's mostly about remembering our intention to actually be present and losing it again and again, and again. But over time with practice, sati can develop into a broader and rather effortless awareness and into a meta-awareness, into a capacity of perceiving in a more holistic way, into an awareness that is wider and more encompassing. And when mindfulness or awareness, I'm using those words interchangeably, we can experience its power to release the mind from afflictive mind states on a temporary base. As our capacity grows to simply know, moment by moment, what the felt experience is, right now, without grasping at it, without making a story out of it, without putting layers of conceptual proliferation on top of it, just allowing the experience to be what it is. As this capacity grows, there can be moments where the mind is truly able to relax, to be at ease and to release the tension. On a retreat earlier this year, I was experiencing craving, strong attachment over and over and I noted it, you know, over hours, okay, craving, again, craving, and not without self-judgment, I have to say, you know, like, this is not wholesome, now stop it, this is enough. <laughs> but it just kept arising over hours. And then one day after lunch, as I was resting on my bed, again, noticing the arising of this craving yet another time, and knowing it, and feeling it, suddenly there was a shift. There was an understanding. Oh, it's just craving. It's funny, you know, over hours I had craving, craving, craving. And then suddenly, oh, craving, you know. <laughs> I found, finally got it. And there was this understanding. It's just another object. It's just an object of awareness. The awareness was very cool, very disinterested in a way and this allowed wisdom to arise. There was just awareness of craving without grasping at it, without pushing it away 
And because the mind did not react to it anymore, the craving was no longer, was no longer fed and it stopped and disappeared. Actually, in this small example, we can recognize some of the functions of mindfulness that I have mentioned. In that situation, the mind remembered to be mindful. There was an intention to practice, to be there. There was an awareness of the present experience. Uh, present experience. There was also enough anchoring of the attention with the object, enough ability to stay close to the experience. Because if the mind does not stay but moves away, then of course we cannot see clearly. And to a certain amount also the mind was not completely drowning in it. It was somewhat protected. So when mindfulness is really there, then anything might arise and it can simply be known. And it doesn't matter what the object is. Whether it's a wholesome or an unwholesome mind state, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, whether it's painful or beautiful, it doesn't matter. Everything can simply be known in the field of awareness. And we can trust that unwholesome mind states that we don't any longer feed will simply pass naturally. That there is no need to manipulate the experience, try to make it go away. But that transformation and liberation come when we learn to trust the process of being present. Referring back to what I said at the beginning about our distortions of the mind. <coughs> In this way, when we learn to simply be present, awake, with a wide, open, spacious awareness, but in a very non-reactive way, mindfulness allows us to perceive differently from how we used to perceive. Mindfulness de-automatizes our perceptions and conceptions and allows us to look with fresh eyes to really take in what is there. New and perhaps deeper understandings can open up to us as we dare to let go of our old and worn out concepts and ideas. And if we can again and again just ask the question, what is being experienced right now? What is being known right now? This is a quote of Bhikkhu Bodhi. <clears throat> in the practice of right mindfulness, the mind is trained to remain in the present, open, quiet and alert, contemplating the present event. All judgments and interpretations have to be suspended, or if they occur, just registered and dropped. The task is simply to note whatever comes up just as it is occurring, riding the changes of events in the way a surfer rides the waves on the sea. The whole process is a way of coming back into the present, of standing in the here and now without slipping away without getting swept away by the tides of distracting thoughts. To practice mindfulness is thus a matter not so much of doing, but of undoing. And then, very naturally, wisdom arises, a deeper understanding of cause and effect, of how we create and shape our world through our intentions and actions, how suffering arouses and how suffering ends. And we can learn to trust the power of awareness. We can learn to take it as our refuge, this capacity to hold whatever is arising in a wide space of awareness. 
This is what we learn through our practice of simply connecting and sustaining our attention over and over. That no matter what is going on, no matter what we are going through, there is always the possibility of returning to this place of knowing, this awareness. Okay, right, this is the experience right now. Okay. And this is all that is needed to fully meet what is there without trying to change the object that happens to be here. And why is it enough? Because really it's not about the object. It's about the awareness of the objects. We can learn to recognize this awareness in any moment, independent of what the content is. And as we learn to rest in it more and more, this allows us to find a place from which we can meet even difficult experiences with an open heart and mind. No matter what is going on, if the mind is fully here, awake and aware, I feel aligned. It feels as if something in me is in deep alignment with I don't know how to say or what to say it maybe just be in alignment with life or with a deeper dimension whatever who cares but it feels profound and it feels wholesome to be in alignment through our presence this has also a lot to do with the ability to relax, relaxing the mind and just being fully awake with what is. Opening the sense doors, listening to life unfolding and just relaxing into whatever is happening now. This takes time to develop. It takes trust because very often our habits are that we try to control, that we try to manipulate. But we can learn how to, rather than control life, how we can learn to participate in life. In a way, being very sensitive, receptive, and knowing how to express ourselves in a way that is attuned. So the ultimate purpose of this practice lies in this aspiration to become free from our unhealthy habit patterns, to see through our mind's fabrications and to develop a wiser and deeper understanding. And from there, we will find a way how to respond to changing circumstances in our lives and in the world. I would like to end with Achan Cha. <clears throat> Try to be mindful and let things take their course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a still forest pool. All kinds of wonderful animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So let us sit for a moment.
Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.